But like I said earlier, we're going to begin a new sermon series this morning, and it's called It's Good. Everybody put up your hands like a field goal and say, It's Good. It's good. The gospel is good. And you might already think that. You might already know that. Yeah, it is good. But there's this growing uh, opinion in our world that seems to be, is it really good? Maybe religion is uh, more harm than good. Maybe the way Christians are behaving and even treating one another makes me think, well, the gospel isn't that good if uh, this is what they're trying to live their lives according to and the results are not so great. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But this series is going to uh, just remind us and encourage us in the gospel and equip us a little bit in how to communicate it effectively. I want to start by asking a rhetorical question this morning. It's a question you probably hear a lot. And the question is, how's it going? How's it going? I bet somebody asked you that question this week. How's it going? How's it going with your family? How's it going with work? How's it going with your uh, backyard project? Just, you know, in general, how's it going? And you respond in a certain way, whatever comes to mind. We ask the question, how's it going with global events? You know, how are those people doing after that natural disaster? How's it going on the other side of the, uh, the globe? How's it going with the war? We get updates like that and just you know, big questions. In the same way, in, in Christianity, we sometimes will ask the question, how's it going with the kingdom of God. How is it going with the faith? And what we mean by that, among other things, we ask the questions like, are churches growing? Are families prioritizing the values that were taught by Jesus? Are people giving their lives to Christ? You might ask, answer this question differently at different times in your life, at different times in Christian history. But nowadays, if you ask people that question, how is Christianity going? If you look at the United States and if you look at Western Europe, you might be tempted to say, I don't know, it's been better. It's not going great. Maybe attendance in church is down. Atheism and agnosticism seem to be on the rise. Maybe Christian government leaders and lawmakers are more in the minority than they used to be. How's it going? It's been better. Sometimes churches will measure how it's going using the three B's. Have I talked about the three B's before? It's a little crass, uh, forgive me, but uh, the three B's that churches sometimes use to measure success is butts, bucks, and baptisms. Butts means butts and chairs. How many people show up on Sunday? What are your attendance numbers? If you look at that, you might say, well, attendance numbers are down. Bucks. What, what does the budget look like? Are people giving? Are churches able to fund the ministries that they used to do? Are churches have as many staff members as they once had? Well, if you measure it by bucks, there's a bit of a decline in a lot of churches as well. Baptisms. Somebody might say, oh, you remember that one summer when we baptized 30 teenagers at camp? So many people were excited for the gospel. There were lots of people giving their lives to Jesus for the first time. Baptisms. I haven't seen as many as we used to. Many of us in our own lifetime, we've seen this decline. You can remember a time when there were more, when it seemed like people cared about the gospel more, and our society reflected Christian values more than they used to. It would be one thing if this was our world the way it is now, and we were this, this is just all we knew. Like, this is the world we grew up in, and we, we do our best to be faithful but it kind of hurts that we can remember what it used to be. We have memories and experiences, and we go, ah, we look back and say, ah, oh, that was the day. Those were the golden eras of our church. 
Why can't it be like it was? We're sad about that. We lament the change, and in some cases, we even fear the future based on how things are going now. So, when it's time to write the report on how it's going in Christianity, it's very tempting to answer that question by saying, it is not going well. But, maybe that's not the whole story. That's what I want us to consider this morning and throughout this summer. I'll come back to that in a second. The Apostle Paul, along with Timothy and Silas, sometimes referred to as Silvanus, they started a church, a church uh, in Thessalonica, Greece. There was a small group of people who accepted the gospel. They became followers of Jesus. They learned what it meant to, to live for Christ. And then Paul and his team had to leave. They had to leave very abruptly and suddenly. And Paul was concerned that because they had only walked with Christians and learned the gospel and followed Jesus for a short time, he was very concerned that they had abandoned their faith. Oh, man, I don't know. I mean, who knows? It doesn't look good for the church in Thessalonica. But then Paul gets a report that their faith is actually really, really strong. It's really sound. And he rejoices and he celebrates. And so he writes them these letters. And the letter of 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament starts with Paul just celebrating their faith and just thanking God for them and saying, man, I was worried about you guys, but you know what? You stood firm. You didn't compromise. Though the world around you doesn't agree with the teachings of Jesus, you held on to your faith. And that's awesome. So he gives thanks for them and he encourages them. But then he also tells them some things that they probably don't know. Paul zooms the camera out from their small church gathering in Greece, and he says, your faith is being talked about. You don't know this, but people in other cities, in other parts of the Mediterranean world, even back to the church in Jerusalem, like the mothership where it all got started, they're talking about your faith and your faithfulness. And the faith that you are holding on to in your small little hamlet is encouraging people that you probably will never meet. It's such an encouraging letter. Think about the church in Thessalonica, how that letter, that good news would reach you, especially if you were starting to lose hope, wondering, looking around and just saying, man, we don't have a lot of butts and we don't have a lot of bucks and we don't have all that many baptisms. But maybe Paul tells them that's not the whole story. There's actually more going on than you think. I want you to just sit for a moment and listen to the first part of Paul's letter to this church and think about what an encouragement it would have been for them and think about how it can be encouraging for us today when he celebrates a life of faithfulness lived and talks about the, uh, the reverberating effects that it has throughout the world. Listen to this. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church gathering in Thessalonica, those living in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus the Anointed. May grace and peace be yours from God our Father and the Lord Jesus the Anointed. We always thank God for all of you in our prayers. Your actions on behalf of the true faith, your tireless toil of love, and your unfailing, unwavering, unending hope in our Lord Jesus the Anointed before God our Father have put you consistently at the forefront of our thoughts. Oh, brothers and sisters loved by God, we know he has chosen you. And here is why. What you experienced in the good news we brought you was more than words channeling down your ears. 
it came to you as a life-empowering, spirit-infused message that offers complete hope and assurance. We live transparently before you so that you would know what sort of people we truly are. And we did it for your sake. And you have modeled your lives after ours, just as we are modeling ours after the Lord. You took to heart the word that we taught with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, even in the face of trouble. And as a result, you have turned into a model of faith yourselves for all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. In fact, not only has the message of our Lord thundered from your gathering into Macedonia and Achaia, but everywhere we go, your faith in God is talked about, so we don't even have to say a thing. You see, they go on and on, telling us the story of how you welcomed us when we were introduced to you, how you turned toward God and realigned your life to serve the one true living God, leaving your idols to crumble in the dust, and how you now await the return from heaven of his son, whom he raised from the dead, namely Jesus, our rescuer from the wrath to come. Aren't those incredible words? They had no idea. They were just trying to be faithful, living their lives, loving their neighbors, worshiping God, making time for prayer. And then they get this report. Oh, you want to know how it's going? A lot better than you think. It's going really, really well because of the small acts of kindness and faithfulness that you guys are doing. I feel like in the same way, Christians today need a reality check. We need someone to zoom the lens out for us and give us more information than what we typically use to measure how it's going with our churches and with Christianity worldwide. It may seem like things are going bad. It may seem like there's no hope for the future. It may seem like we're never going to get back to the way things were, but that's not the whole story. So here's what I have in mind for this summer. In June and July, we're in this sermon series called, what's it called? It's good. The gospel is good. I'm going to try to just do two things each week. First thing is we're going to listen to Paul's words of encouragement to the church in Thessalonica. We're going to do what we just did. We're going to listen to a section of the letter. We're going to try to receive it as though he is encouraging the Christians here in the Tri-Valley area. And we're going to do it in a way that it's going to be a devotional reading. It's not, we're not going to like examine each word and each sentence and say like, oh, this means this and therefore we have to do this and oh, we, you know, we, we discovered some new truth so we have to rearrange our chairs in the way we worship. That's not the approach we're going to take with this. It's going to be more of a just, just listen and soak it up. You may have noticed the translation that I used this morning is different than maybe what's on your phone or in your printed Bibles. It's, it's a translation called The Voice and it's relatively new to me, although it's been around for several years. It attempts to be faithful to the original intent of the biblical authors, uh, and a lot of scholars were involved in the process of, of just doing what I said we're not going to do, like do the, the deep dive into the word studies and just try to understand how to be faithful in translating this Greek text into English. But they also teamed up with a lot of artists and authors and creative thinkers who are choosing words that fit what is going on there. So it may be different than what you're used to, but I'm doing that intentionally. Sometimes when we hear the same words of a passage or a scripture that we're familiar with, we just kind of like go into memory verse mode and we just we run with it and we lose some of the, the impact it can have on us. Like if we start the Lord's Prayer, it's like our Father in heaven. You're like, oh, I know this one. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. 
we're not praying. <laughs> we're just, we're just kind of like sliding down a hill. Um, so that's kind of the approach. That's the first thing I want to do. We are going to let the words of Paul wash over us and encourage us the way it did the early church. The second thing I want to do in this series, and we're going to do this each Sunday, is equip you with information that we can use to respond to the false narrative that the gospel is not good. Sometimes in our world today, we'll hear messages from unbelievers or skeptics or critics of Christianity. They'll ask questions like, aren't we better off without Christianity? Wouldn't the world be better if there was no religion? Hasn't science disproved religion? Like, why are we even still talking about this? We're living in a scientific age. Can we just move on? It asks questions like, isn't Christianity pro-slavery and anti-woman and homophobic? How would we respond to those questions? All those questions I just asked, I think a faithful response is no. Not necessarily. There's more to the story. There's more going on here than you might think. And here's a challenge. is not just knowing how to respond to some of these criticisms, but how to do it lovingly. How to do it gently and kindly and in a way that doesn't drive people away. If the good news is really good news, then it should be worth receiving for people. But like, let's say someone comes up to you on the street and they're like, hey, come over here, come over here. And you're like, whoa, I've never met you before. Come here, I want to give you $100. Like, okay, well, that's good news, but it's terrifying. Uh, I don't know if I can trust this person. In the same way, I feel like sometimes well-intentioned Christians want to give people the gospel. We want to share what we know, but the way we do it is a little scary. It's a little impersonal. It's not very well done. That's one thing we're going to try to do this summer. Try to equip us faithful responses that are also gentle and loving. And our guide for this series is going to be a book called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. This is a book that you can pick up on your own. I encourage you to do so. Uh, it's not the only book that tries to defend Christianity or equip Christians with faithful responses to questions that are often asked. But the reason I like this book is one, because its content is faithful, but two, its tone, I think, is worth listening to. It's not aggressive. It's not fluff. Uh, it's, it's well thought out. It's intelligent. And I think it's gentle and it's Christ-like. This book was written by Rebecca McLaughlin. And uh, just to kind of introduce you to the, the author, and I want to read you a quote. It's kind of an extended quote, not from this book, from, from an article that she wrote around the same time that this book was written. And it's, it's connected to the content of this book. And this quote is written on the back of your little uh, half-sheet order of worship there, if you, if you got one of those. You can follow along. But I, I printed this because I want you to take this home. You can maybe put this on your fridge. She says this, when it comes to giving reasons for our faith, we Christians are playing far too defensive a game. We've believed that Christianity is declining. It isn't. We've assumed that Christianity can't stand up in the university. It can. Too many of us think Christianity is threatened by diversity. It never has been. Too few of us think Christian sexual ethics are sustainable in the modern world. They are. On these and many other fronts, we have conceded far more ground to secularism than it deserves. You might at this point be saying, amen, preach it, Jacob. Now here's the important second part, the other side of the coin. But we've also been playing too aggressive a game. 
We've majored on point scoring and culture warring when the Bible calls us to gentleness and respect. We've propagated weak arguments without listening to real experts. We've blindly stepped out into cultural traffic rather than taking our lead from those with credibility to speak. If we are to be faithful in this cultural moment, we must, we must be neither retreaters nor attackers, neither needlessly defensive nor faithlessly aggressive. Instead, we must go on a gentle offensive. I think that's a great term. I probably should have called this sermon series gentle offensive, but I went with it's good instead. We must go on a gentle offensive. I think this is going to be a good series. It's going to encourage us with words from scripture. It's going to equip us with some healthy arguments and just some information that we may not have known, kind of like the church in Thessalonica didn't know what was going on in places and regions of the world that they couldn't have seen. But I'm a little nervous because I don't want us to take this information and go out and hit people over the head with it. I don't want you to go on social media and like copy and paste this stuff in all caps. There is too much of that. Here's a pro tip. Don't try to have any meaningful conversations with anybody on social media. <laughs> I see people try to do it and then they get confused like, I wasn't trying to start a fight. I don't know why I'm estranged from this person now. Well, it happens all the time. Have relationships with people in person. Have meaningful conversations. Be willing to engage, but don't use this information as a weapon. Use it as a resource. Use it like a tool. So, that's where we're going. And as promised, this morning we are going to respond to two very common criticisms that people often have for Christians. The first one, and this, this information, by the way, comes largely out of this book. So, uh, I'm not pretending I'm an expert on this, but, and, and I encourage you to go and check this book out. There's going to be some statistics and some facts, and if you go like, Jacob, I don't know about your numbers. All the footnotes are there in the book. I can get them for you, but just a little disclaimer. The first question is, wouldn't we be better off without religion? Like across the globe, worldwide, wouldn't all of us be better without religion? And the second question is, uh, isn't Christianity anti-diversity? Isn't it just a primarily white Western religion and trying to get everybody to homogenize? So those are the two questions we're gonna uh, entertain today. Number one, aren't we better off without religion? Isn't the world better off? You might be familiar with John Lennon's popular song, Imagine. Uh, the lyrics of this song kind of pose that question and try to make this case. Like, religion is the cause of all the problems in the world. John Lennon says, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us and above us, only sky. The second verse says, imagine no possessions. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. When we think of church decline, when we think of the, of the rise of atheist and agnostic voices in our world, when you hear about, have you heard about the rise of the nuns? The nuns, uh, not, not like Catholic nuns, but N-O-N-E, nuns. This is a reference to people who on surveys, when it says, what is your religion? How do you, what, what religion do you identify with? There's a growing number of people that click the last box, that none, no religion, just, ah, I didn't grow up with it, I don't want it, I stay out of it. There's this thing called the rise of the nuns and like this growing voice of people who aren't interested. When we consider those things, it seems to us like more people today are siding with John Lennon than are siding with Jesus on this issue. It seems like a lot of people are just ready to let it pass, to give up on faith all together. But wait, that's not the whole story. 
The Pew Research Center projects that by the year 2060, Christianity will be the largest global belief system. And the proportion of humanity identifying as atheist or agnostic, that's those nuns, it's actually going to decline from 16% to 13%. And we may uh, feel like people aren't going to churches, we look around, our churches are shrinking, our kids aren't as faithful as the faith and households we were raised in. We think of these things, we may not consider that while Christianity is declining in the West, it's actually growing and blowing up in other parts of the world, like South America and Africa and Asia. Here's a statistic that's kind of exciting. In 1900, there were 9 million Christians in Africa. In two years from now, in 2025, there will be 600 million Christians in Africa. 9 million to 600 million in a little over a century. It's projected by the year 2030, China will have more Christians than the US. Can you believe that? That's not far from now. 2030 is right around the corner. China could be a majority Christian nation by 2050. They project the fastest growing evangelical Christian movement in the world is located where? Let's see if you can guess. Where in the world do you think the church is growing faster than any other place? Any questions? Any thoughts? Korea, Antarctica, where else? India, China. The answer is Iran. Iran, ready? 20 years ago, the number of Christian converts from Islam to Christianity was about five to 10,000. And today, it's between 800,000 and 1 million. That is a huge jump. Kind of to summarize this, you might say, uh, Christianity continues to grow, whether or not it grows in our neighborhoods or not. Whether or not the US is on board, the kingdom of God is not stopping. It is growing, it is advancing. People's lives are being changed because of Jesus. People are saying yes to Jesus. Maybe even more so than people who are saying no to Jesus. What are some other uh, ways that the gospel is good? Research suggests that people who attend church services are more optimistic, they have a greater purpose in life, they're less likely to divorce, and they're more self-controlled. Imagine that. Sounds like a lot of the things that we teach. The more that modern psychology discovers a better and healthier way of living, the more they seem to overlap with the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament. I want to give you five quick examples of this. Jesus teaches it's more blessed to give than to receive. You might have heard that one before. Well, studies show that volunteering has a positive mental impact. Helping others in the workplace leads to improved career satisfaction, and financial generosity has its payoffs. Jonathan Haidt, an atheist social psychologist, a guy that does not believe in any god, says this. This is kind of fascinating. Surveys have long shown that religious believers in the United States are happier, healthier, longer lived, and more generous to charity and to each other than are secular people. They give more of their money to secular charities than secular people and to their neighbors. And they also give more of their time and their blood. That's Jonathan Haidt not trying to make a case for Christianity, but observing the data. Number two, love of money disappoints. We know we're not supposed to make an idol out of money. You can't serve two masters. Economist Jeffrey Sachs says income per capita has more than doubled since 1972, while happiness or subjective well-being has remained roughly unchanged or has declined. Three, gratitude is good for us. Paul will remind the churches later on to give thanks in all circumstances. 
Well, psychologists discover that daily gratitude is good for you. It makes you more optimistic. It increases your physical health. Gratitude, we know, is at the heart of the Christian faith. Sometimes when the Parnells are gathering around for our family prayers uh, before a meal or something, we, uh, we'll offer up a prayer that sounds like this. Thank you, Lord, for loving me, and thank you, Lord, for blessing me. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole and saving my soul. We are grateful people. It's good to be grateful. Number four, self-control and perseverance are Christian virtues. Psychologist Angela Duckworth agrees with this, saying that passion and perseverance for very long-term goals can be more predictive, pre predictive of a person's success than social intelligence, good looks, health, or IQ. Having passion and perseverance for seeing something through. And lastly, forgiveness is foundational. Jesus' words ring in our ears when they asked him, how many times should I forgive? Because I'm getting kind of tired of it. Seven times? Jesus says, keep going, keep forgiving. Journal of Behavioral Medicine cites that freely forgiving someone is linked to multiple positive mental and physical health outcomes. These and many other statistics are just a good way to zoom out and say, hey, here's, here's kind of more information that we need to take into consideration. So if the cultural narrative that people are subscribing to is regardless of whether or not any of this belief stuff is actually true, the world will be better off without it. That's kind of the narrative. But the data seems to say otherwise. It seems to show that belief in God in general and Christianity specifically are actually good for the world. That's number one. Aren't we better off without religion? Not really. Number two, isn't Christianity anti-diversity? It may seem that way. And there may be some things in Christianity's past, some things, some histories we'd like to forget that says, yeah, we're kind of going for a, like everybody looks the same in our churches. But the truth is, Christianity is actually the most ethnically diverse religion in the world. Uh, I've got a slide that may not make a lot of sense. It's a graph that uh, we'll put up there in a second. This is, is kind of talking about the, the different religions of the world are on the left-hand side, kind of listed there. And then the colors represent the regions of the world where people have these faiths. And then the one that's second to the bottom, that is Christians, kind of spread out more evenly than any of the other ones throughout the rest of the globe. This is kind of, this was a breakthrough during the time of Jesus, and it still kind of maintains until now. Uh, ancient religions tended to be regional. They tended to be tribal. We would have our local gods, and if you traveled to someplace else, then they believed something different over there, and they would sacrifice to their specific gods. When Christianity came onto the scene, that sort of was the expectation, like, oh, Christianity is a Jewish thing. It's more than a Jewish thing, the New Testament reminds us. It's the door is open to everybody. It's an everybody thing. Today, think about a religion like Hinduism. Here's another pop quiz. You'll probably get this one right. Where do you think the most Hindus in the world live? What country? India. You're right. Yeah. 97% of Hindus live in India or Nepal or one other neighboring country. Uh, and it's true. The case is true in other details for other world religions. But Christianity is just something that appeals to people across the globe. We are reminded that when Christianity was new, it was not just a Galilee thing. It was not just a Jewish followers and believers of Jesus thing. When Jesus died, we remember that the curtain in the temple was torn in two, and access to God was made available to all, to all, 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 through 
Jesus Christ. And people ask the question in the early church, it's available to all, like even Gentiles? Because there's some rules about interacting with Gentiles. Yes, it's available even to Gentiles. Isn't that good news for us who weren't raised Jewish? Is it available for women too? Because I mean, like 12 disciples and Jesus was a dude and this is a patriarchal culture. What about the women? Yes, even women. The first evangelist recorded in the Gospels was a woman. It was the woman at the well. Jesus said, go and tell what you've seen and heard. And she goes and tells people about Jesus and they come back and they believe. The first evangelists of the resurrection were Mary and the other women who saw the empty tomb and went, whoa, and they went back and they told the others about it. All right, what about eunuchs? What about eunuchs? These guys are a little strange. They're very different from us. We don't really understand their way of life. The first Christian evangelist in Africa, the first Christians in Africa were because of a eunuch from Ethiopia. The gospel continues to be for all and continues to appeal to all. So why do people think that it's anti-diversity? You might be able to answer this question. It's a longer discussion, but it has some ugly moments in our past where we tried to homogenize believers. We still sometimes, this day, we think that because uh, the way we do it is the way that everybody in the world does it, or the way we do it is the way everybody should do it. And when you think about India's history with British imperialism, it's kind of not surprising that there aren't very many Christians in India. We think that if Christianity is declining in white Western places, it must be declining everywhere, but that's not the case. So we need to ask ourselves as a church, what does it look like to embrace the diversity that the church was founded on? What is my attitude toward immigrants and other people who look and sound different from me when I realize that it's likely that those people from other countries are adding more Christians to our population than we are? What does it mean for us to truly love our neighbors as ourselves? and to love God with all of our heart. So, I'm gonna to try to wrap things up here. How's it going? How's it going? People, sometimes when you ask that question, how's it going, somebody will just kinda of like go, oh, it's going. And you know what they mean when they say that, right? They mean like, ugh, it's not going the way I thought. It's not going the way I expected. I mean, it's going, like it's, it's not stopping for me and my busyness or my unpreparedness. It's going. And I think that that is how some of us feel when it comes to the kingdom of God. Like, when we hear this information and we realize the kingdom of God is not in trouble. The kingdom of God <laughs> moves on with or without me. And we say, hey, how's it going? Because we think it's going good. We're going to follow the Holy Spirit where he leads us. How's it going? We might go, oh, oh, I don't know. I wasn't ready for all this change. I wasn't, I'm not used to diversity. I'm I, I don't know how to handle this. That's fine, that's good to acknowledge, but that doesn't mean it's not gonna be going. It's gonna continue to go. Christianity's not stuck in the mud. It's not threatened. As I've said before, and I continue, this is my mantra, the kingdom of God is never in trouble. And if we really believe that the gospel has something good for the world, for ourselves, for families, for our neighborhoods, if we truly believe it's good, then we got to think about how we're going to represent it well in the world, how we're going to share this with others. I hope this message was an encouragement for you today. It's been an encouragement for me just being ready to, to stand up and share this with you. And I'm excited for where we're going this summer.
So uh, may God's kingdom come. May his will be done here on earth as it's done in heaven. Let me pray, and then Greg's going to come up and pray for some of the folks in the congregation. Lord, we celebrate the resurrection. We say along with Mary and the other women, the tomb was empty. We believe that Jesus was raised from the grave by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we have hope that we, too, will be raised at the time of the resurrection. We look forward to a home, hope of a home in heaven with you, resting in the arms of Jesus, like some of our beloved friends and family members are doing right now. But meanwhile, Lord, I pray that we don't lose heart. I pray that we don't lose focus. I pray that we don't subscribe to cultural narratives that say the gospel isn't good. I pray that we're not shy about it. I pray that we don't feel like we have to apologize for the thing that we believe. Instead, I pray that you will equip us with information, with opportunities, and most importantly, with a heart for sharing this with a world that is desperate for it. A world that in some ways and in some cases has turned their back on you and have found out it just leads to destruction. It just leads to pain and brokenness. Lord, I pray that you are positioning your church and Christians throughout this community in places to receive people who have ears to hear and are ready to consider what it means to love and serve and follow and trust in Jesus Christ. Again, I pray your kingdom come. We pray this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen.